Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. My name is Jeremiah. I uh, work on staff here at Grace. And as we start this morning, I'd like to ask you to imagine with me that you are sitting in a college literature class. Okay? Your professor is a highly respected, uh, tenured member of the faculty at your university and, and has been teaching longer than you've been alive. And on this particular day, your professor is, is teaching on the different characters in, in the novel Emma, the, the classic work by Jane Austen. And, and naturally, you trust him because he's been studying Jane Austen and her work for a very long time. And then, then imagine that as, as your professor's teaching that Jane Austen herself walks through the doors of your classroom and interrupts your professor, and she begins teaching on Mr. Knightley and the dynamics of his relationship with Emma. Who would you listen to? Who would you trust? Jane Austen, of course, right? Because she's not talking about something that she has studied. Right? She's teaching on something that, that she created, that she wrote. You might thank your professor for his insight, but then you'd invite him to come take a seat next to you, right, and start taking notes too. Because the one who wrote the story is now at the podium. And the time for conjecture and, and educated guesses is now over. The author is here. I think that may be a picture of what it must have been like for first century Jews when Jesus showed up on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and, and first began teaching. Yeah, I, there must have been this sense, based on how they responded, this sense that, that his understanding, his knowledge of reality was in an entirely different category than that of, of the teachers and the scribes who had been leading them. As they, as they looked at, at their former teachers, right, these scribes, they must have thought kind of like that college literature class. You know what? Why don't you come take a seat right over here? You know, you may want to grab your pens and, and paper. You're going to want to take notes too because the author, the one who wrote the story, is now here. And the time for speculation is over. You see, the fact is Jesus is the smartest, the wisest person who has ever lived. And his knowledge, his understanding of, of reality, of, of life itself, of, of the nature of God, the human soul, and how the universe runs is, is in a category all its own. Okay? And, and so when you look at, at who he was and how different he was than anyone who's ever come before him who, or will ever come after, then it, it just makes sense that when he first began his ministry at the age of 30, that the first, one of the first, and, and certainly the most frequent word that came out of his mouth, was the word follow. He invited people to come and to follow him, to become his disciple, to, to run after him and to learn from him about the realities of life and the nature of God, the human condition. I, I mean, where else would you go? Who else would you follow? If you were thinking about starting your own business and you got a phone call from Warren Buffett, you would take that call. Right? If he offered to help you and, and give you advice on how to run a successful company, if there was anybody else giving you advice at the time, you would ask them to please be quiet because Warren Buffett's on the phone. If you were renovating your kitchen and there was a knock at the door and you opened it and Chip and Joanna Gaines were on the other side of that door, when you came to, you, you would say, could you please help me on this kitchen I'm working on? Please, I would love to have you involved in that. 
right? You see, with, with Jesus, that invitation that he gave to those Galileans a couple millennia ago, it's the same invitation that he gives us today, the invitation to come and to follow him. That's his call on, on each one of us, uh, is, is to run after him, to become his disciple. And, and the, the question that has an obvious answer is, who else would you follow? You know, who else is like him? Is there another classroom that you would rather be in? I mean, everyone else is just making their best guess, aren't they? Of course. Of course we would follow. It just makes sense, right? And Jesus, sure, he came as Savior of the world. He did. But he was also the most brilliant, the the wisest person to ever walk this earth. And what his offer is, his, his invitation, his call is to follow him, is to become his student to learn about life from him. You see, what I, I want to do today is, is I want to talk first about what does it mean to follow? What does it mean to, to be a disciple? And the second, I'll move to you know, how does it look? How do we actually follow Jesus as believers? And then third, we'll look at a couple of the ways in the Gospels that um, we can stumble on that path of following Jesus. A couple of the ways that we can be knocked off the trail in, in, uh, in our attempts and our desire to, to follow after Jesus. Okay, so the first one is, what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? And, and this is an enormously important question because the presupposition in Scripture is that every believer, every Christian is a disciple. Okay, we say around here every believer is a minister. That's true. Before that, every believer is a disciple. Okay, uh, following Jesus, being a disciple, is, is not, it's not this optional upgrade in the Christian life where we can choose to have Jesus forgive our sins but not, not trust him to lead us through our day, right? They, those go together. There is no such thing as a Christian who's not also a disciple. Now, I can be a bad disciple, but if I'm a believer, then I'm a disciple, okay? So that first question, what does it mean? What does it mean to follow, to, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? What does that mean? Well, I, I appreciate the way that Dallas uh, Willard puts it. And, and he says that being a disciple means learning from Jesus to live my life as he would if he were me. Okay, it's learning from Jesus to live my life as he would if he were me. And, and as, as Christians, it's easy to assume that, that once we become believers, it's like we're all kind of thrown into this big melting pot. And we're all stirred together so that we all end up looking and, and thinking and talking and feeling the exact same way. And, and I would propose that it may be almost kind of the opposite, the reverse of that that's true, where when we become Christians, what happens is, is what's supposed to happen is Jesus comes to us and, and he, he gets expressed, he gets glorified through the, the unique aspects of how he designed you. And so if you're a cleric, a, a type A sort of personality, it's, it's learning from Jesus how to use that temperament to get a lot of things done for the kingdom of God while also growing in patience with the rest of us, right? Or if it's, um, if it's a gift of helps that he's given you, it's, it's learning to use that to, to meet an, an immediate need in the life of a neighbor next door or across the street and, and, and then also learning when, when your helping can actually hurt as well. He'll, he'll teach you that too. It's learning from Jesus how to live my life as he would if he were me. That, that's, that's what happens in the Christian life. And, and Dallas Willard, he goes on to make this very point. And please excuse the length of this quote, but it is just good enough that I'm going to read the whole thing. Willard says this. He says, if Jesus were to come today as he did back then, 
He could carry out his mission through most any decent and useful occupation. He could be a clerk in a hardware store, a computer repairman, a banker, an editor, a doctor, a waiter, teacher, a construction worker. He could run a house cleaning service or repair automobiles. In other words, if he were to come today, he could very well do what you do. He could very well live in your apartment or house, hold down your job, have your education and life prospects, live within your family, your surroundings, your time. None of this would be the least hindrance to the eternal kind of life that was his by nature and becomes available to us through him. Last sentence. Our human life, it turns out, is not destroyed by God's life. It is fulfilled in it and in it alone. It's a great quote. Look, if Jesus, if he could have your disposition, if he could hold down your job, if he could live in your neighborhood and be related to the family members that you are, then, then it, it makes sense that we would look to him. We, we would uh, ask him. We, we would want him to teach us, to lead us, to show us how to do our job, to live our life, to relate to our, our families and friends and neighbors, right? I mean, I mean that, that, it just makes sense. We would look to him to do that. See, being a disciple, being a follower of Jesus is learning from Jesus to live my life as he would if he were me. Okay, what does it mean? That's what it means to be a disciple. Second question, how does it actually look to be a disciple, to, to follow after Jesus? Well, I would say uh, that a great analogy, a great picture for the life of discipleship would be this. It'd be trail running. And I know some of you might look at that and think, you know, why would you run on that perfectly good trail when you could walk, right? Beautiful day. Don't miss it. But I bring up trail running because... You know, if, you, if, you run, if you've ever run a trail, you'll know that the only way to be successful at that is to constantly be scanning just a couple of feet in front of you, right? When you're running on a trail, uh, the most important step is the one you're about to take. I have a buddy who's competed in, in a couple different uh, trail running races here around Texas, and he told me about one of these races. He said it was an 18-mile race on trails in the middle of a Texas summer. At night. And you had to bring your own light. Okay, the other runners in this race, they thought my friend was weird because he ran that 18 miles with shoes on. That's weird. <laughs> but can you imagine the, the amount of concentration, the focus it would take to traverse those tree roots and rocks and crevices, right? What is the most important step? It's the one you're about to take. Right? The pivotal moment is this one. All, right? all of your attention, all of your efforts have to be focused on what is right in front of you. If you're going to be able to run a trail, especially a trail like that. And, and so I, I would say let's add this on to our earlier definition of what it means to be a disciple. And, and I would extend it to say this. That, that being a disciple means learning from Jesus to live this moment of my life as he would if he were me. You see, being a follower of Jesus is almost entirely about what is right in front of you. The very moment that is upon you, the, this very next step, the Christian life, that's what it's about. And, and so, you know, the question is, will I uh, right now choose to be respectful towards my boss when he or she has just embarrassed me, maybe even intentionally in front of my coworkers? Will I in this moment choose to listen attentively to my wife or, or to my friend when their story has outlasted my attention span? 
Will I decide to discipline my son gently or harshly in this moment, this very step, when he has verbally accosted his brother for the third time today? The Christian life is about what is happening right now, this next step, this next moment that's right in front of you. It's learning from Jesus to live this moment as he would if he were me. That is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and that is how it looks. Okay, so we've talked about what does it mean. It's learning from Jesus to live my life as he would if he were me. And then how does that look? It's a lot like running a trail where the moment that counts, the, the attention that your, needs, your, your focus needs to be on is the step you're about to take, this moment right in front of you. Okay, but then what are a couple of the ways that we can get knocked off this trail, that, that we can lose our way in, in our desire, in our attempts to, to follow after Jesus? What, what are a few of those obstacles that we can face? Well, uh, one of the first ways that, that Jesus says we can do that is, is that we could be looking ahead out of worry. Okay? By, by fearfully looking ahead to the future, you can, you can lose your way. You can lose your focus on what he's asking you to do right now in this moment, this step that's right in front of you. Okay, in Luke chapter 9, uh, Jesus, he sees a man, and, and he calls out to the man. He invites him to follow him. And this is what the man says in response. He says, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You see, scholars, uh, they say this man's father, he, he very likely hadn't passed away yet. And, and while it was, it was not a bad request that this man wanted to go and, and bury his father sometime in the future, Jesus' response is essentially this. L- let the future worry about itself, okay? I, I don't want you to be concerned with. I don't want you to be worried about what is coming down the road. Okay, the only choice you need to make is whether or not you're going to join me right now. That's my question for you. That's where your focus needs to be. If we're focused on what might happen tomorrow, then, then what, what happens is we mess up what's right in front of us today. You know, if, if my focus is, is a couple hundred feet down the path, then I'm going to end up uh, tripping and falling, you know, on this opportunity God's placed right before me where he wants my focus to be. And, and this is why Jesus, in his most famous sermon, this is why he said, look, it is utter foolishness. To, to worry about tomorrow, to fear what, what's coming down the road. He says, look, this is what God's going to give you. God's going to give you the grace that you need to make it through this day. But you know what he won't do? He won't give you the grace today that you'll need for tomorrow. Okay, tomorrow he'll give you the grace you need for tomorrow. Okay, you focus on this next step, this moment, this day. Let, you, let your concentration be there. And, and anyways, the truth is that the vast majority of what we fear about the future, of, of what we worry about down the road, the vast majority of it, it'll never even happen. Okay, there was this intriguing study done by the University of Cincinnati, and they found that 85% of what we worry about tomorrow, okay, that might happen down the road, 85% of it, it never happens. 85% of what keeps you awake at night never becomes a reality. It doesn't happen. And in the same study, they found that the 15% that, that does happen, that does become a reality, that people were, were better able to, to manage it and maneuver it and, and get by it than they expected they could. And, and for most of them, they learned a lesson that they appreciated learning. It, it was valuable to them, that, that 15% that came true. 85%. Not even going to happen. And so, you know, when I look at my own life and, and how this has shown up for me, uh, for, you know, a decade ago, for the first couple of years that I worked here at Grace, 
I, uh, I rarely took vacation. And the reason was uh, it, I was stockpiling vacation hours because I thought, you know what? It could be that sometime down the road I might lose my job. And I'm going to need those vacation hours to get my family through the couple of months it would take to find a new job. Do you know what that's called? It's called being a dope. <laughs> I, I mean, at the very least, I was a hoarder. <laughs> you know, give me those vacation hours. I'm going to hold on to them. I, I was anxiously looking ahead to something that hadn't happened that probably wasn't going to happen, and I still hope won't happen. But... But consider how many people I hurt by, by that fear, by that worry, by looking down the road instead of at this moment that God put in front of, in front of me. Right? I suffered from not taking the breaks I needed. My family suffered. My ministry here suffered. I was living out what Michel de Montaigne said 500 years ago when he wrote that. He said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortune, most of which never happened. What are the terrible misfortunes that, that you're looking ahead to, you know, worried about and, and fearfully focusing on right now that, that's going to trip you now, keep you from, from following in this moment, on this day? What are those mis- misfortunes that you foresee that probably won't happen? Look, if you are uh, frightened about ending up alone in the future, you know what that's going to do? There's a good chance that that will cause you to date or to marry someone who could ultimately damage your soul. You'll be willing to do that. If you have uh, financial fears about tomorrow and being provided for, providing for your family, it's going to keep you from being generous today. You know, if you have excessive worry about your child's future, it will keep you from being a a courageous parent now in the decisions that you make about your son and your daughter. Jesus says, don't look ahead. You know, don't worry about tomorrow. Today is where I want you to be looking. That's where I want you to be focused. Most of it will never happen, and even what does happen, God's going to give you the grace you need to get through it. He'll, he'll grow you as his follower through it. So he says, rest easy. George McDonald, he, he once said, the next moment is as much beyond our grasp and as much in God's care as a moment 100 years away. He says, care for the next minute is as foolish as care for a day in the next 1,000 years. In neither can we do anything, and in both, God is doing everything. It's a good word. Looking ahead out of worry, it will stifle our ability to follow Jesus now. Okay? Keep your head down on what God has in front of you today. The second way Jesus warns that we can lose our way in learning how to live each moment of our lives as he would if he were us is by looking around, looking around at rivals, at, at other priorities. And uh, Luke, he shares a similar story just in the very next two verses where a man approaches him and the man says this. He says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replies, he said, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And it seems seems like a harsh response, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, this man's desire is is to say goodbye to his family. It it seems like a a reasonable request, even even a good and, and thoughtful one. What is wrong with it? What's wrong with it is Jesus knows that it's not this man's love for his family that's wrong. It's that this man's love for his family, his affection for his family, is a rival to his affection for Jesus. And Jesus has no rivals. Look, anytime you catch yourself saying or, or maybe thinking, uh, I will follow you, Lord. I'll obey you in this. But first, 
what we're doing is we're revealing that our, our priorities are off. Because whether you're plowing a field or running a trail or living the Christian life, you, you can't do any of those things while you're mesmerized with something else, while you're looking around at, at, at other rivals, other priorities. You can't do those things. You see, there's no way to be successful in that. And so looking at anything other than the step you're about to take, it, it's how you get wrapped around a tree in your spiritual life. Okay, and, and look, we have to understand that the priorities that are often going to distract us and, and kind of force us off the trail, those priorities are usually not going to be sinful ones. Okay, they're not going to be inherently evil. Uh, there was a, a wise author who said, it is the good and noble things, not the low, evil, petty ones, that most often serve as roadblocks and detours on our journey to true joy. And, and I tell you, it, it is so true in parenting, isn't it? You see, I mean, we all know that God asks us to, to love our kids. He asks us to do that, right? He just asks us not to love them more than him. Jesus, he can have no rivals. He will not be second place. He can't do it. He won't do it. And, and sure, I mean, it's so easy to love that, that son, that daughter, that person right in front of you whose hands you can hold and whose voice you can hear. And that's great. And that, that, that makes sense. And it's as it should be. But if your love for your child is greater than your love for God, this is what he's going to ask you to do. Okay? He won't ask you to love your son or your daughter any less. He won't do that. But he will ask you to love him more. You see, it's not your love for your child or for that other person that's off. It's your love for God that's off. And the way you know that your love for God is growing in the direction that it should is because those very people that you used to love more than him, what you do is you'll find yourself trusting God with those very people, those children, that spouse, that friend. You, you find yourself trusting him with them. And A.W. Tozer in The Pursuit of God, he said, look, we are often hindered from giving up our treasures to the Lord out of fear for their safety. But we need to have no such fears. Our Lord came not to destroy but to save Everything is safe which we commit to him, and nothing is really safe which is not so committed. Look, God's not going to ask you to trust him with the safety and the well-being of your kids so that he can crush them. He won't do that. He'll ask you to trust him with, with your son your daughter because he's a profoundly better parent than you are. Everything is safe that you commit to him, and nothing is safe that you don't. You see, it's not just looking ahead out of worry and fear about what might happen tomorrow or down the road. It's also when, when we're uh, entranced, right, focused on something or someone else, some other treasure or priority that, that we fall off the trail, that we trip and fall, okay? And, and if, if we do that, if we catch ourselves looking at things other than God, this is what could happen. We could face plant like that guy. You don't want to look like that. That doesn't look good on anybody, does it? There's one last way that Jesus says you can lose your way in being his disciple and learning from him how to live your life as he would in this moment if he were you. And that last way is, is by looking back, looking back out of regret. You see, the, the shame of past sin may be one of the, the greatest deterrents, maybe one of the greatest threats to the life of discipleship. I mean, just think about it. There are no rearview mirrors on trails, and there are no rearview mirrors in the Christian life because you are not who you used to be, 
and you are not what you used to do. Uh, think about Peter. Think about the life of Peter. Um, after Peter had denied his Savior three times, and, and there can be no greater regret than that. After he denied him three times, I mean, just think about where Jesus finds Peter. He finds him back home, right, going by his old name, living his old life, working his old job. You see, Peter had he'd hung up his running shoes. He'd given up. He'd tapped out. And, and he would forever be known by those 15 minutes in a high priest courtyard. And when the resurrected Christ, when he finds Peter on, on the shores of the, of the Sea of Galilee, he comes to him and, and he reminds him of that new name that he had given him. And then he will repeat the two words that he said to Peter three years before. He says to Peter, follow me. Right? He says, look, Peter, you are not defined by that 15 minutes in your past. Okay, that is not the end of your story. Would you stop looking back? Follow me, the next step. That's what I want. That's what I care about. That's what I want you to be looking at right now. You just need to get up, put your shoes back on, and let's go. We've got a trail to run together. Right? That's what he says to Peter, and, and it's what he says to us too. Those 15 minutes in your past, those aren't who you are e anymore either. Okay? Those don't define you, and you will not be forever known by those 15 minutes. Look, is there a rearview mirror in your spiritual life that you are always looking into? And if there is, would you please smash it? Would you be done with it? Okay, and, and hear those two words again that Jesus said to you all those years ago. Follow me. It's present tense. It's right now. It's this moment. It's this step. It's what he said to Peter. It's what he says to us. And look, if there are choices back there, you know, that, that haven't been made right, that you need to go and, and, and ask for forgiveness for, make right, whatever, then go and do that. If it would do more harm than good, maybe hold off. But, but you go and you make that right. And then once you've done that, don't ever look back. Don't ever look back. Okay, you turn around, you see what God has for you right now. That's what he cares about. When the enemy, when he comes after us and when he tries to debilitate us, I, I think it'll oftentimes be in this way. You know, he'll bring up uh, your past sins and, and, and shame you for, for those 15 minutes. And, and he'll call those to your attention and say, you'll never outlive that. That is forever who you are. And, and when that happens, when that condemnation is calling out for you and you can't get those voices to shut up, then, then you might consider doing what Martin Luther did because he had indiscretions in his past that, that would not let go of him. And, and the enemy, the devil, would, would remind him of those things and, and do what Martin Luther did because what he would do is he, he would literally yell back at the enemy, at, at, at Satan. He would yell at him and he'd say, yeah, you know what? You don't even know the half of it. Okay, I did a whole lot worse than that. You don't, even, you don't even know all the other things I did. And then he would, he would name a bunch of other sins that he'd committed that the, that the enemy wasn't reminding him of. And he'd kind of pile these on top one, one after another. And then he would stop and he would quiet down and then he would remember that Jesus had paid for all of those sins on the cross. Why don't you try that maybe next time? Maybe close the door first or make sure you're the only one home. Give that a go if this is something that, that's keeping you from following Jesus right now. Because, look, look, regrets, the reason they're so dangerous is not just because you'll miss out on the present moment and what God has given you now to obey him in. Regrets are also so dangerous because th there's this 
poisonous shame that they stir up, and, and, and it will cause you to sabotage the present, right? And we will think crazy thoughts, like, I have messed up so badly, it doesn't even matter what I do now. We can think that way, can't we? The great St. Augustine, he lived about 1,600 years ago, but he wasn't always a saint. In his life before he became a Christian, uh, Augustine, he was famous for his promiscuous lifestyle. Even one of his early prayers when he had just become a believer, when he just became a Christian, was, give me chastity, Lord, but not yet. <laughs> you ever prayed a prayer like that? I know I have. And see, Augustine, as, he, uh, as his faith, I guess, took root, what happened in his life is that God got a hold of him and transformed his heart changed his soul, changed his life, and Augustine began to understand that, that he was not the old Augustine, that he was a saint, Saint Augustine, that, that he'd been made holy by God, and so he began to love and serve people instead of using them. And one day, he was visiting a town that he, he'd lived in before he became a Christian, and as he was walking around downtown, uh, one of his former mistresses saw him across the way, and she yelled out after him, and she said, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine, he turned around and he looked at her and he replied, he said, yes, but it is no longer I. You see, Augustine knew that the old man was gone. Old Augustine was dead. And he was now Saint Augustine. He was a new man because he was following a new master now. And with Saint Augustine, when, when your past sins, when, when that shame wells up in you, you know, when sins are calling out your name or accusing you, you can say with Augustine, you can say, yes, but it is no longer I. You know, I am not who I used to be. I follow a better master now. Friends, there is only one place to live the Christian life. Hey, it's not to be lived looking ahead fearfully out of worry of what might happen tomorrow that probably won't happen anyways. And even if it does, God will get you through it. It's not to be lived... Um, entranced, mesmerized, you know, focused on, on something or someone else, some of the treasure or priority. It's not to be lived looking back out of regret about who you were or what you used to do. Okay, the only place to live the Christian life is right here. It's right now. That's, that is where Jesus calls you to come and, and to learn to think the thoughts and to experience the emotions, to make the choices that he would make if he were you. Look, all those people in the Gospels who chose not to follow Jesus, who chose not to become his disciples, who, who chose not to pay the tuition to become a student in his classroom, do you know what happened with them? I don't know either. Jesus' call has nothing to do with what happened yesterday. It has nothing to do with what might happen tomorrow. His call has to do with with right now, following him in this moment, in this next step today. That's what he calls us to do. Dallas Willard, he once asked this penetrating question. He said, is it possible that we can rely on Christ for the next life without doing so for this one? Can we trust him for our eternal destiny without trusting him for the things that relate to the Christian life here and now? Is this really possible? And I'll bet you could guess his answer. He said, surely it is not. Come and follow. That's Jesus' invitation to you today, 
and every day. What will you choose? I'd like you to think about that while we close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask uh, first, if, if there is anybody here this morning, Lord, that, that doesn't know you, that, that hasn't heard that call from you to, to come and follow, to trust you with, with their past, their present, their future, with, with the sins that have uh, defined them to this point, Lord, I, I pray that they would give their life over to you, that they would surrender to you and say, yes, I want to be a, a student in your classroom. I want to learn from you. I want you to be the Savior of my life, my rescuer. Would you please do that? And Lord, for those of us who have a relationship with you, Father, you, you, know, you know if there's something that's, that's knocked us over, something that, that's pushed us off the path of, of following after you. And, and Lord, I pray that you would, you would point that out to us through your spirit. If you haven't already done that, Lord, you would show us if there's something uh, in, in our worries and our fears or, or some other rival, Lord, or, or some, something in our past that, that we just can't get over or we can't get past or that, that is drawing our attention away from you, Father. Would you, would you show us what that is and allow us to courageously say, Lord, take that. You can have it. It's yours. And I'm all yours. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.